I surprisingly am up here again. I know I taught last week and I'd been saying I'm going, going to teach once a month. So I thought I had four more weeks to get to this last part, which is a little hairier part to deal with. And then Pastor Ryan's like, oh, could you actually do it in two weeks? Because I really want to go to the, the local associational meeting and whatnot. And having that time would really help me out. It's like, okay, I, I can make it work in two weeks. I kind of already have half of it prepared. So I kind of want to parse out some of the fine details. And then he calls me Thursday night, you know, and I'm an early to bed guy. He's like, can you actually do it Sunday? I know it sounds crazy. It's like, that does sound crazy. Um, but I think it's actually going to help because it's, it, it's going to help me make sure I just keep this on a very summary level, like I've kind of been doing with the law before. I'm not getting into too many applications of how we parse it out and whatnot, which that was going to take the most heavy lifting. I am still very much interested in that, but knowing that Pastor Ryan's going to be doing that in his preaching after we're done with the Ten Commandments, because after that you get into judicial law and civil law, um, I, I was like, okay, I, I can make this happen. We'll keep it at a high level, and we'll do that. Another benefit of that is I don't have to do, okay, we've been gone for a, a month. Let's review kind of what we were at the last two months and bring it all together so I can kind of skip a lot of the review. So with that, let's pray, and we will just dive headfirst into this. Well, Father God, we do come to you, Lord, humbly um, recognizing that you are, are all in all apart from you. We can do no good, Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us without a witness, but you have given us your will through your word, God. We pray that um, as we look at a certain section of it today, that we would rightfully divide your word, uh, that we would use your law lawfully, God. This is one of the reasons we study these very um, doctrines, such as the threefold division of the law, God. So please bless our study now, Lord. Help us to glorify you even in this, Lord. We know um, you are glorified even in these some of the minutiae, these fine details, Lord. Help us not to get lost in the forest and, and, and forget that these things come from you and they reveal you to us, Lord. So help us to see you more uh, gloriously as you rightfully are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been going through the Ten Commandments with Pastor Ryan. He did recommend a certain book, and I'm kind of trying to whittle down that book into kind of a layman's thing. It's, it's, I would say it's quite a scholarly book. It's from the finger of God. And actually, after I, I finished this today, I was like, I realized I really only summed up a third of this book. Um, but I, I did get pieces from the rest of it and bring it all into this. You'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. But with that, let's just dive right into it. Um, some of the benefits of why we talk about the threefold the division of the law, why it's important and what not. Starting off with what, what it is exactly. This comes from Philip Ross's book, quote, it's practical theological teaching answers the Christian's question, am I still bound to obey the Mosaic law? So he has very practical applications. The threefold division of the law says yes and no. The Mosaic law does not apply without exception to the Christian, but nor can we dispense with it all together. One part of the law is non-binding, another binding in its underlining principles, and another ever-binding. And these parts of the law are summarized as follows. We first have the moral law, which we spent most of our time in. We have the ceremonial law, which we actually looked at last week. And today we're going to be dealing with the civil law, which is what we say is binding in its underlining principle. So that one seems to kind of have this middle ground between moral, ever-binding, ceremonial. Well, it's non-binding now. We saw how it was fulfilled in Christ. Those were types and shadows. Then we have the civil law, which just kind of seems somewhere in between-ish, maybe. Who knows? Um, well, I'm, I hope to be able to explain some of it today. Let's uh, define each one to make sure we know where and what we are talking about. So beginning with moral law, this was the definition that we've been working with. The only laws that are, without exception, ever binding are the laws of the Decalogue. Those Ten Commandments reveal the demands of God upon all people, not just those in ancient Israel. From the beginning, they were the basis upon which God judged mankind. The coming of Christ and the incorporation of Gentiles into the church did not nullify the Decalogue. It remains binding upon Christians and non-Christians alike. I remember, of course, they were using the word decalogue to mean the Ten Commandments. Deca, think of decade, ten, log, word, the ten words, the decalogue, the Ten Commandments. That will be used a lot interchangeably. 
we saw from the distinctness of the Decalogue, just as kind of a, a rapid fire, high level view of what we saw, they specifically are called the 10 words. Nothing else gets that designation. They're written with the finger of God on stone tablets. They're considered the covenant itself. Again, it's, it has a very high priority. And, and even though we could say all of Mosaic law is one law, there are parts we see that you, you could say it, it's, it's discriminated against because some parts are higher than other parts. They were put into the ark, not beside this place where God met with his people. And even though the rest of the laws were placed next to the ark, it was only the Ten Commandments that had that special place in the ark, that, that which we also see is ultimately the throne of God even. And nothing else was to be added to them. We could also mention how it has the priority in Revelation. We see many times how God um, himself makes that a big deal. I, I first told you these 10, and then I give you the rest. He even mentions that throughout um, the prophets, which was interesting. We saw a couple weeks ago. But going back to that last point, this brings up a function of the Decalogue that we haven't explicitly mentioned. We've kind of mentioned it in passing, but I find it really helpful. Again, this comes from Ross's book. He says, quote, It is widely held that the Decalogue has a unique canonical function as a summary statement of the laws that follow it. Patrick Miller illustrates this with an analogy between the Decalogue and the United States Constitution. Since neither are strictly legal, both contain basic principles rather than exhaustive legislation. As constitutional law, they are an unchanging foundation on which a body of precedence and case law is built. Each of the commandments has a kind of trajectory as their scope is broadened out into the rest of the law. The Sabbath command, for example, hits its target in the follow lands and jubilee year laws, Leviticus 25, 2-8, while the commandment against adultery resurfaces in laws against incense. And if you look in most commentaries or even um, study Bibles, you'll see lists of, of how these laws go back to kind of those headmaster headings of the Ten Commandments. Um, there's many examples we've already gone through, but I really liked how Patrick Miller kind of just said, like, this is, con it's, it's, look at it like a constitution. Um, there's other commentator commentators that even mention it's the constitution of the universe, where it, this is not only binding upon the nation of Israel, right? We say these are binding for all men. So all, all our laws, all of our ethics should be stemming out of the Ten Commandments, because those are things that are unchanging since they reflect the character of God, as we've been talking about. Um, and I, I bring this up now because as we're getting into the civil law, I think it's especially important, as we'll see later. But going back to the threefold divisions of the law, that was the moral. Let's quickly review the ceremonial law definition, which is what we looked at last week. Quote, the non-binding laws were exclusively ceremonial. They regulated the Israelite sacrificial system and matters such as ceremonial cleanliness. Although they hold forth moral duties, they were typical of Christ's sacrifice, and since he has fulfilled all that they typified, they, were, they are abrogated and non-binding upon those who follow Christ. Some of the rapid-fire summary, what we saw last week. First of all, the ceremonial laws are not talked about in the same way that the Decalogue is. That's, that's obvious, but we do need to state that negative case as well. We saw that they were based on a heavenly pattern. We saw that mercy not sacrifice paradigm mentioned many times throughout the Old Testament and even the New. It's, there are no other laws where God says, I hate that. I hate that sacrifice. I hate your, that type of worship. God never talks that way regarding moral law or civil law, like we talked about last week. He never says, I hate that you're faithful to your wife. He, he only says that of ceremonial type things, which again shows a difference in these types of laws. We saw there was a built-in obsolescence. They in of themselves were temporary. They were shadows. We saw this specifically in um, Hebrews 10's interpretation of Psalm 40, saying why these things were temporary because of how they were given, why they were given. Even if we consider Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, that promise of the new covenant is given because the old wasn't sufficient. And in a lot of the context you have in Hebrews, it's specifically talking about those ceremonial aspects of the law, but of course also the whole Mosaic law as a whole. 
and they're described as shadows, and the shadows are explicitly canceled or made obsolete. So we argued why that language is saying they are abrogated. Like, yes, they are fulfilled, but it is important to note that they are also abrogated. They are done away with in Christ. They're made obsolete, canceled. There's even stronger language that you find in Ephesians 2. So, so that's moral law, ceremonial law. And today we are jumping into the civil law. Let's, of course, define that one. It's interesting. This one has the smallest definition, but I think can get the most hairy in its application. Of course, we're not even getting there yet. So we're dealing with more of the easy stuff. So the civil law, we can define it as this. Laws concerning everyday civil matters in the Israelite community are binding in their underlining principles. The Christian is not bound to obey the Mosaic civil code in detail, but the moral principles at the heart of the civil law still bind. Again, a very fine distinction there that we're going to look at in detail. Uh, so just like we've done with the moral and ceremonial law, we want to see from Scripture whether this is a legitimate category of the law at all. A um, kind of, again, starting looking at its distinctives, we, first of all, the civil laws are not talked about in the same way that the Decalogue is. It doesn't get that priority or status. It's also not talked about like the ceremonial laws are, and we'll look at that in a little more detail. Primarily, when we look at, at this phrase, in the land, this exact you know, Hebrew phrase used throughout Deuteronomy itself when it's giving the law, it's interesting that at least five times explicitly mentioned how those are laws given in the land, and that winds up becoming an important phrase for us as we seek to, okay, how do we apply this? Is it for us? Who is it for uh, to show you kind of what I mean, if you remember those pattern laws, we looked at all those last week, how those were ceremonial laws given according to a pattern or a model. They were based off of something. And the purpose ultimately was for God to meet with his people so that they could worship him, as we saw in Deuteronomy 4, 13 and 14. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. I know this Philip Ross said, the laws about purity were according to the pattern of heaven in that they banned impurity from God's presence. Unlike other civil, unlike other laws, and here in the context, this is in a section called civil and ceremonial. So he's talking about the civil laws, which ensured a well-ordered state. The laws about purity were necessary solely because God's dwelling in the tabernacle and thereby among the people. We don't have anything like that in our modern United States or modern, uh, or even the New Covenant, rather, to cleanliness of the heart so Christ can dwell with us in that way. Other laws, civil, sought to establish peace in a fallen world, prohibiting sin and specifying penalties. Such laws did reflect Israel's status and relationship with the Lord, but the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, Penta, the Pentateuch does not present them as a duplicate of the heavenly order, whereas the pattern laws connected with the tabernacle reflected another world. And that was a very big difference in what we saw about the Decalogue. We see that the Decalogue reflects the lawgiver itself. We talked about that a lot in the first week. The Ten Commandments reflect the lawgiver himself, showing forth who he is. This is why they're eternal. This is why they never change, because God is eternal. He never changes. The ceremonial laws, particularly the tabernacle ones, are based on a pattern, but it's not on God himself. It's, it's on some sort of heavenly model pattern and whatnot, um, short, reflecting another world. Again, I, I love that verbiage. It really sets it off as, uh, it makes me excited, like I said last week, to, to get through and, and start studying out, you know, hearing Pastor Ryan's sermons regarding ceremonial law and whatnot. Um, the civil laws aren't talked about this way. In fact, over against these pattern model laws, we see they have a certain scope, and that's in the land. Of course, what does that mean? We see in the land phrased throughout Deuteronomy, as I said. Before any laws are given in Deuteronomy, which winds up taking place towards the last half of Deuteronomy 4, it starts off with Moses giving a historical prologue, kind of basically telling the Israelites, here's why you can trust the Lord. Here's what he's already brought you through. We've, we've kind of seen this with Exodus as well. This isn't typical of, of laws. Like, here's why you can trust your king before he kind of lays down the law. Uh, Moses begins with a brief history of their 40 years wilderness wanderings in Deuteronomy uh, after they had been freed from the Egyptian slavery after a successful campaign in Horeb, where they settled for a time. We pick up in Deuteronomy 1.6, which reads, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, 
you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowlands and in the Negeb, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So these are the same land promises. If you guys remember when we were going through Genesis, he starts giving these land promises to Abraham, the father of the faith, if you will, the father of these people. And not only to him, but to his son Isaac and his son Jacob, the patriarchs. God remembers his promises, and he shows that he is going to fulfill them. So even though God's timeline is not always the same as ours, as we learned from Peter, you know, one year is like a thousand, a thousand, Lord. But the Lord is not slow concerning his promises. If the Lord has promised us, we could take refuge knowing he will fulfill it. He will see it through. And that gives us, as Christians, great encouragement, knowing, you know, the Lord has promised that he's taking us to glory. We will one day be glorified and the Lord will fulfill those promises. And that gives me great hope. <laughs> that keep, causes me to continue to trust him and to look to him in faith and to anytime I run into a sin, to repent of that sin quickly and to go back and, and um, to my father uh, who is, is for me and has these promises for us. This, but going back to Israel, God remembers the promise he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. More history is given until we get to Deuteronomy 4. Yeah, that was uh, 6 through 1. Deuteronomy 4 reads, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you are to do these in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And that doing these laws, specifically he mentioned statutes and judgments, those are to take place in the land. Again, mentioned five times throughout Deuteronomy, which primarily deals with a lot of the civil laws. These laws are given to a certain people and are said to be performed in a certain place, that is, in Canaan, in the promised land. We don't ever see that the Decalogue or moral law is talked about in these ways. God never says, only, only you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, only is to take place in a certain land. We don't, we don't see that talk. Well, what about the ceremonial laws? Are those only for a certain land as well, based on the heavenly model? Are they supposed to be just performed just like this as well? At first glance, it's, it, you, would, you would seem like yes, but we wind up seeing an exception when we look at the wilderness wanderings and whatnot. No such qualification applies to the laws about sacrifice and purity, which are those ceremonial laws. The tabernacle was established and filled with the glory of the Lord in the wilderness. We see that take place in Exodus 40. And then Aaron and his sons were anointed and began their ministry before Israel crossed the Jordan in Leviticus 8. And then we see in Leviticus 9, the Lord even accepts their offerings. It's, it's not like they, they did something, it's just a historical narrative, and they shouldn't have done it. You know, we have some historical narratives like that. You know, just because it's necessarily done in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean it was approved of by God. In this case, we do see it was approved by God. Leviticus 9, he approves of it. Of course, in Leviticus 10, you see, that's when you see the strange fire, Nadab and Abihu, worship that the Lord did not command, uh, or strange fire winds up taking place, and uh, they're executed for those, those sins of that, uh, not following God's law, as he commanded. In his essay, Wisdom, Divine Presence, and Law, George Browlick says it like this. These laws determine Israel's life only after the conquest of the land. It is because it is, it is only there that the law can be observed. The possession of the land is vital for Israel. And of course, we see that conquest starting to take place at the end of the Pentateuch and particularly in Joshua uh, when they finally get that. Of this, Philip Ross says, quote, the qualification in the land therefore restricts the binding force of the statutes and ordinances to the promised land. In so doing, it distinguished them from the Decalogue, the moral law, which was always binding, and from the pattern laws, those ceremonial ones we were talking about, which were binding even in the wilderness. So there we do see a difference with the civil law, making it distinct from those other laws, again, helping us to define and defend this threefold division of the law. 
That qualifier in the land you're entering to take possession of shows that there are laws that weren't meant for other nations, because these are also things that God does not say, you shall judge the other nations by these laws. The other nations, we wind up seeing being judged for things that wind up being moral. They're murdering, they're idolatry, things like that. These weren't laws for all people at all time. We see that even in the Old Testament itself. They were to govern the Israelite people when they took that promised land, when they took Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, which was their promised land. And then according to the last chapter of Joshua, they got that land and God's promises were fulfilled. Again, we can trust God's promises. When he makes them, he keeps them. Joshua says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had felled. All came to pass. Joshua 21, 43 and 45. Again, that should be of great encouragement to us. You know, not only does God not forget his promises, but he keeps his promises and causes them to happen, being a sovereign God, of course. God fulfilled his word. We don't look to these land promises or a specific plot of land flowing with milk and honey. And really, it's not really flowing with milk and honey anymore, that uh, plot of, of dirt in the desert. We know that Israel continues to sin, and they wind up in exile ultimately after this time in Joshua. Uh, well, it's not like that's the only time they started sin. It's kind of been their history. Any future promised land promises we see, which we do see some even after this, are ultimately pointing to a promised land that is a much greater land than even what was spoken of throughout the Pentateuch. We aren't looking to that plot of dirt in the Middle East, nor any city even built by man. Let's again turn to Hebrews. Remember, we turned to Hebrews uh, last week to help us with this. Hebrews is just generally a great place if you have any confusion about the law of God. Go to a Hebrews 11.13. I'm sorry, just Hebrews 11. Up to this point, the author of Hebrews has been showing us how Jesus is superior to Moses, to the Mosaic Covenant, to its priesthood, to the earthly tabernacle. And these are encouragements to us. He pushes us forward. Seeing that Christ is greater, this is a, a push for us to be faithful, remain faithful, continue to cling to Christ. Just starting off in, in Hebrews 11, we're kind of just going to scan through 11 through 13, real high level-ish. Uh, we start off with a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jump to verse 8. Let's read through verse 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Here we're referring to the promised land. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith... He went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham is looking for a heavenly city, ultimately, we, we learn from the author of Hebrews, not an earthly one, ultimately. Uh, let's go down to verse 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Again, they're looking for a greater land. They weren't merely going to be content with that plot of earth. They knew ultimately these things were pointing forward to a heavenly reality. And it's amazing to me how the author of Hebrews says, yes, even them, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood that. They, they understood these things were, were temporary. These things were shadows. Uh, let's look over at chapter 12, where after listing various types of God's peoples all throughout, again, this is, uh, Hebrews is one of my, my favorite books. It really helped me out a lot in understanding dispensationalism, New Covenant theology, uh, really Reformed theology, and ultimately, you know, having Baptist convictions, the way Hebrews explains the Old Testament to us and whatnot. Uh, we see God has faithful people all throughout redemptive history, kings, prophets, 
priest, normal citizens, etc. And he contrasts the new covenant with the Mosaic covenant. Look at verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched. Again, this is a contrast with how the covenant at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, was given. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpets and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This land is our land. The, this land is what is promised to God's people, to the church, ultimately, this heavenly Jerusalem. Of course, we know heaven will meet earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. But this is where we have come. So yes, while we are on the earth, this is why we call ourselves exiles, sojourners, and whatnot. And, and these, I, I love how these, these land promises are so gospel rich, the way the, the author of Hebrews in here is. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When, when I had gotten to that part, it had reminded me of this really great hymn by William Gatsby. For those of you who don't know William Gatsby, and I, I didn't write this up here because this was kind of a, in the middle of this, just this really gospel-centered song. William Gatsby was a um, reformed hymn writer, wrote lots of hymns. There's a couple groups like Red Mountain Church, and Indelible Grace has covered some of their songs that kind of are bringing back his hymnal. There's a, there's, um, it was one of Spurgeon's favorite hymnals as well. Um, it's got some rich stuff. And let me, let me read one of these hymns based on this, on this section here. And it came to mind as I was studying this. It is called Mercy Speaks, by Jesus' blood, and it goes, Mercy speaks by Jesus' blood, hear and sing, ye sons of God, justice satisfied indeed, Christ hath full atonement made. Jesus' blood speaks loud and sweet, here all deity can meet, and without a jarring voice, in contrast to Sinai, right? Welcome Zion to rejoice. Should the law against her roar, Jesus' blood still speaks with power, all her debts were cast on me, and she must and shall go free. Like we had been talking about in some of the sermons, you know, our relationship with the law is drastically changed this side of the cross, it having been fulfilled, the demands of the law, the punishment of the law having been fallen on Christ. Peace of conscience, peace with God, we obtain through Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood speaks solid rest. We believe and we are blessed. And let me just get to the, there's, nine verses total. It's, it's also just wonderful poetry. O ye wretched sinner base, sunk in sin and sad disgrace, hear the blood of sprinkling cry, come and you shall never die. Let's continue on in Hebrews, uh, looking at Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. Again, we're kind of looking at some of these land promises and how they are talked about in the new covenant. Hebrews 13, what I say, 12 through 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. There again, we even see a, a um, new covenant application of ceremonial law. You know, our sacrifices today for us, our sacrifice of praise defined here as the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, which if you've heard Pastor Ryan's sermons through the third commandment, honoring God with our lips, uh, we've gotten some of that as well. We also see that even talked about right in Romans 12, 1, our lives as a sacrifice. That all stems out of ceremonial law. Oh yes, verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. It's interesting in Exodus 33, 7, we see that for a time Moses had to pitch the tent of the Lord outside of the camp. And why was that? That was because the Israelites had rejected God and his presence, ultimately breaking his law. We also see that Jesus had to be crucified outside of the city for various reasons as well. 
though God's law is good and just, its implementation doesn't necessarily mean we just flatly apply it to us in our modern day without any trying to figure out which parts apply to us and whatnot. As we see, these things are parsed out very differently in the New Testament, this side of the cross, the Mosaic Covenant having been passed away, abrogated. We ultimately also see that just having the law, Israel was given God's law, and it was good, and it was just as it talks about it. I think it's Hebrews 2 that says, even every punishment given was just. Um, and so if God says, this is how my law is going to be, here is the punishment, then that is good and that is just, since it comes from a God who is just, who is justice. Uh, however, one thing that we need to remember is um, we ultimately need not just an administration change. We don't, you know, having these laws come in if we just, you know, try to throw in Israelite laws in America, right? We ultimately still have the problem that Israel had. They didn't have new hearts. You know, there, there were saved people in the old covenant, but just as a nation in general, we see rebellion, we see wickedness. And that's one thing that makes the study of the civil law really interesting is that we see God's laws, but we don't really see a court process happening or things like that. Really what we see is a sad history of people rebelling against God's law and seeing our need, you know, one of the functions of the law is to point us to Christ, seeing where we fell and seeing our need for Christ. Um, but anyways, what did, I, what did I write here? Furthermore, though God rules and reigns over all generally, he specifically rules and reigns in the hearts of his people by the Spirit. And where is Jesus, our King? He is on the throne, as we read in Hebrews 2. And this is in the heavenlies. It is not a physical, earthly reality um, at this time. In, in one day in the future, it will be. We will be co-heirs with him as well. So I, I like to joke when having, you know, talking about some debates with politics, I go, well, you know, ultimately we're looking for a monarchy, you know, where Christ is king, ruling and reigning on the earth. But it's not just a it's not a pure monarchy, I guess, because we are co-heirs, co-reigning with him. I don't even know exactly what that means or how that looks, but I just know it's going to be glorious and good. Yeah, one day, Christ, the perfect lawgiver, will be ruling and reigning on earth when he returns with those 10,000s times 10,000s and countless numbers coming back with him. The warrior king who comes to conquer, slaying all his enemies and bringing them to the final judgment. It isn't till then that all of creation is set free from the curse. And that is a promise we have also as part of the gospel in Romans 8. And uh, again, I, I, because I had four less weeks, I was like, I'm going to cram some of this. And I didn't get to... Uh, go over it as much as I would have liked, so uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, it is until then that all creation is set free from the curse that our representative Adam brought on us and this world. That is when the leaven that leavens the whole lump is fully and finally purged, granted the sentence of the second death for failure to uphold God's perfect law. That is also something interesting we see in Old Covenant penology, rather how the penalties were carried out in the civil government. These things are ultimately types pointing to a greater, a greater death because the death in the Old Testament is not ultimate and final, right? Christ said, don't fear him who could kill the body, fear him who can kill body and soul. Anything that those death sentences are pointing to is ultimately the judgment of God. All right, on to the next slide. But we are assured of better things for you, brothers, for those who are in Christ. Notice how it is lawbreakers that are ultimately, again, how I was talking about the new heavens and new earth. Those outside the camp called dogs or whatnot are also called the lawless. They don't have the law. Here we see in Revelation 21, 7 and 8, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son, right? The ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That is the ultimate judgment of God. But of course, like I said, we are assured of better things, brother, for you who are in Christ. Because even the verse before that talks about those coming to the waters of, of life and drinking freely, overflowing with this gospel grace and whatnot. Well, with that said, let's look at one other quick line of evidence for this civil distinction in the law. That was all brought up to kind of deal with some of those land promises and how civil law is given to a particular people in a particular land. The beginning of Romans 13 is clear for us to submit to the civil government we have been placed under. There is, of course, a higher law, right? 
This is um, Philip Ross on Romans 13. While the apostles called for obedience to the commandments of the Decalogue, they recognized that the civil laws were of temporary jurisdiction when they declared the legitimacy of ruling authorities calling on Christians to submit to them. And it's interesting, in Romans 13, if you remember that first week, we dealt a lot with the verses right after this, which we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal, you shall not um, murder, you shall not commit adultery. And he said, if there's any other laws, you know, these all ultimately fall under loving your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, New Testament applies God's law, the, civil, the moral law, directly on us. It's ever abiding as we see. But as far as civil laws, it's, you know, you look to the government that you are under. Of course, there's ultimately a higher authority than any civil magistrate, as the apostle would say, you know, do we follow men or do we follow God? Ultimately, God's word and his rule reigns over any civil magistrate, um, over any authority, really. You know, you could, you could tell the same thing to kids. You know, like, God has given you parents to be your authority, but if they are telling you to do something that is against God's law, then, yeah, you are to obey God rather than man in that case. You know, God willing, that doesn't happen in our church. Um, but just in general, that's how the authority structure works. God is ultimately the highest at the peak. Um, nothing surpasses that. All right, let's review our definition of the civil law before we get too lost in the weeds here, like I was hoping we didn't, but I think I did a little bit. Civil law defined says, laws concerning everyday civil matters in the Israelite community are binding in their underlining principles. The Christian is not bound to obey the Mosaic civil code in detail, but the moral principles at the heart of the civil law still bind. So what is this second section here, the moral principles about? Recall how Pastor Ryan put this when he was kind of giving our introduction to this, this um, to the Ten Commandments, the prologue to the Ten Commandments, even when he was talking about the threefold division. He said the following, there are some laws that have been, a, that have been done away with in their specific application, but the moral principle behind them still applies to us. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Right, that's just an Old Testament civil law there. You and I are no longer required to build parapets on our roof. In fact, it wouldn't do us very good because we don't use the roof like they did in the ancient Near East. Nevertheless, although the application of that situation is no longer binding, the moral principle, namely guarding and protecting human life, does still apply to us. This is one reason we have building codes, and I would say those are good things for us because they keep us protected. You know, some people who are greedy for money would try to cut corners that could cause buildings to be dangerous. So it is a wise thing, um, and it ultimately falls under what law? What law is he talking about here when he's talking about protecting human life and guarding it? Well, there he's talking about the sixth commandment, thou shall not kill, right? As we've been learning throughout the law, it's more than just thou shall not. The positive aspect of it is, well, we are to protect human life. God is a life-giving God, and we are made in his image. So any, any form of murder, any, any, any harm done to one of God's images, well, there needs to be um, retribution or restitution made for that. So these, the purpose behind these is protecting human life. This is one reason we have guardrails on, you know, when you're driving up mountains and there's guardrails to keep you from flying off a mountain. That's a good thing to keep us from death. Or if you have a balcony, you have guardrails, things like that. Um, now note, when we discuss this topic known as the general equity on the law, this isn't how we do it. So this is how, how some in the past have tried to apply this. This pulling out the moral principle of this law, it, it, it's called general equity. We're, we're gonna get a little bit into it, not, not too much. So we don't reason from these civil laws given to Israel in their conquered land of Canaan, again, specific laws for specific people. But we do seek to apply those um, not just flatly to a nation. You know, one, one person kind of said it like, we don't go from Canaan to California. It's not how we do it. Um, some people who try to do that will say, okay, well, we have God's law, and then we have God's ideal civil laws, which are the nation of Israel. And then we can just, we need to take those since they're ideal. Why wouldn't we want to just apply those directly to America? That we would say is, is not how we 
get, this isn't how general equity works. This isn't how we, we divide up God's law. This, this isn't a proper application. This isn't using the law lawfully. Um, it isn't as simple as that. Again, for starters, there's a couple things they don't even consider when doing this. They don't consider the, 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 that Israel itself is a unique nation. There is no other nation in the history of the world that God calls his son in the way he does with Israel. He doesn't give other nations the same promises he does specifically to Israel. So we need to be careful to just try to take what they have and just flatly apply it to our situation, our sphere of authority, our government, etc. Uh, it doesn't take into consideration that Christ is ultimately the antitype of Israel. Christ is the true Israel. He is the true son of God. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeds. I mean, this is, you read the book of Matthew and you, and you see all these Old Testament verses about the nation of Israel directly fulfilled and applied to Christ. Um, so that isn't how we do it then. What is the way we do it. Um, here is a quote from uh, Calvin to help us out. He says, quote, It is a fact that the law of God, which we call the moral law, is nothing else than the testimony of natural law and of that conscience which God has engraved upon the minds of men. Now, natural law isn't something we've gotten too much into. We will be getting into it more. In fact, Ryan said he may just do a whole sermon on that. The important part of natural law that we need to know is that it's, it's, it's the Romans too. You're a law unto yourself. Even though the law written with God's finger, the town tablet stone wasn't given to you directly, you know that it's wrong to kill. You know that it's wrong to steal. You who say, do not steal, do you steal yourself? Like you're a law unto yourself. This is, this is God writing his law on the minds of people, what we call the conscience. That's natural law. That's exchangeable with just saying that's the moral law, you know, or the Ten Commandments are the summary of that moral law. Calvin goes on. Consequently, the entire scheme of this equity, as pulling out these principles from the civil law, of which we are now speaking, has been prescribed in it. Hence, this equity alone must be the goal and rule and limit of all the laws. So what he's saying there is when we're looking at those civil laws, we're not, we're not just looking, okay, don't boil the kid in the mother's milk. We don't just look at that and just try to apply it or put a parapet on your roof, everybody, whether it's helpful and useful or not. No, we're, we're, we're drawing out the principles of what those are. Another reformer and student of Calvin Theodore Beza put it this way, although we do not hold to the forms of the mosaic polity, yet when such judicial laws or civil laws prescribe equity and judgments, which are part of the Decalogue, we not being under obligation to them insofar as they were prescribed by Moses to only one people are nevertheless bound to observe them to the extent that they embrace the gener that general equity which should everywhere be in force. So if a law just, you know, the natural man can even reason like, well, this makes sense. We should do this so that people don't get killed. Let's not leave live wires out hanging over our door entrances that the natural man can even reason that. Well, yeah, that ultimately falls under the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, right? We're trying to preserve life and whatnot. Or you go throughout, uh, look at history throughout nations all over the world. They have some kind of consequence for stealing. They recognize thieves should be punished. Um, it's, it's part of the natural law. It's, it's moral law. This is something everyone understands, even darkened minds, even fallen man. Of course, we don't understand it perfectly, which is why God needs to also tell us clearly through his word. But uh, Beza goes on. The Lord commands that the deposit be returned and that thieves be punished because it follows natural equity and expounds that perpetual precepts of the Decalogue. Thou shall not steal. To this extent, all are bound to fulfill them both. Again, the equity, that underlining principle, is derived ultimately from the Decalogue. Like we said, if you think of the Ten Commandments of Decalogue as a constitution, then we could see how, how there are, everything's related to that. So we could pull out principles that we could still apply today. Okay, so if this is not how we do it, just taking God's law, saying, okay, Israel was the ideal nation, let's just apply it to our current government, just America for this example, then how do we do it? Well, first we start with recognizing that the Mosaic laws, the judicial or civil laws, are made up of moral and positive law. Again, positive law isn't something we've spent too much time into. This is essentially, um, a quick example of this would be, 
um, the worship of God. Or one example we were talking about on at, uh, men's night is how we worship God. We know we are to worship God, and there are uh, even signs of the covenant. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision. Now we have baptism. We don't know that naturally. God has to explicitly tell us. So positive law is something added onto, an addendum, if you will. But that all ultimately falls under the worship of God, which is part of the Ten Commandments, moral law. So we look at that Mosaic law, we pull out that general equity, and then from there we make the application. That's the essence of what we're talking about. We're talking about general equity and how the, those principal parts of the civil law are still binding for us today. Well, that's because they stem out of the moral law. One great benefit we should mention, though, is that we do have those mosaic judicial laws, those civil laws. And so it does give us great examples of how to apply these. And it could help us in our modern times to, okay, there was a law like that. Well, how can I apply that? You know, one example you can think of is there's no Old Testament laws on identity theft. There is nothing really, I guess, exactly like that um, the way it is now. But we can look at laws regarding theft and, and seek to pull out the principles and apply that to how a, a, just, a just measure could be dealt out so that it is, it is justice, if you will. Yeah, so th this was one way that um, Pastor Ryan summed it up. He said, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. If we applied this just that, that kind of flat way, we could say, okay, Pastor Ryan, when you're going hunting, you know, he likes to hunt. If you have a hunting dog, you should let your dog eat half of that duck or part of the duck if he's hungry or whatever. That's, that's, that's not how we seek to apply God's law. Rather, we see how the New Testament apostles apply it. They say, quote, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox where it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages, 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. So we get this principle because this is, this is the hermeneutic of the apostles. We see the apostles doing this. This is why we believe that's the proper way that you do it. This is also a funny joke because every time, or most of the time when I sign, I sign checks that Dennis has for me, he's just, okay, it's time to feed our ox. And so uh, that's a great way to uh, remind us that like, okay, general equity. Thanks, Dennis. Um, and this example, we're out of time. So I'm going to skip over that example and get to the concluding part. Regarding civil law, instructions are given as to what may or should be done as to preserve the spirit of the Constitution. A considerable portion of statutes and judgments are, so here he's talking about uh, civil law, and this is uh, Patrick Fairberg, this is a, a uh, book that uh, Sinclair Ferguson helped publish, um, intended at once to explain and confirm them. They serve materially to throw light on the import and bearing of the Decalogue. He's essentially just saying, all the laws are basically expositions of the Ten Commandments. Of course, Jesus, the greater Moses, if you, if you think of Matthew 5, this is exactly what you see Jesus doing as well. He's looking at the Ten Commandments saying, okay, you've heard it taught this way, which was not correct. Here's actually the, a proper exposition of these laws, the Ten Commandments. So this section of the civil law, here's, here's the, um, Ross's conclusion on it, and then we'll conclude with his overall conclusion of the book. Only the, ten, only the ten words function as the constitution upon which all else is merely commentary. They were the foundation for the laws that would govern Israel in the land. It was their constitution, a constitution rooted in creation and anticipating new creation. Ultimately, it was the constitution of the universe. Again, like I said, we primarily only spent time in looking at the Decalogue's own definition and, and divisions of these laws, if you will. Um, we, spent, we, we, we got some stuff from the New Testament, but we could spend easily, uh, I could think of like seven more Sunday schools easily to look at this just throughout how the prophets talk about it in more detail in the New Testament. But I think we've made our case, and so we'll leave it at that. This, this I think, will serve as a good understanding fundamental principles for how we're going to, you know, Right now we're in the moral laws. Pretty soon we're going to be in civil laws and then ceremonial laws. Well, what does that mean for me as a Christian? Should I be going to a Messianic Jewish church and, and doing these types of sacrifices and whatnot? Like, so these questions do matter. The answer to that is no, in case you are not sure. Um, anyway, so then we saw moral law, ceremonial law, and civil. Closing quote, and then we'll pray. So what would Moses think? 
If the Pentateuch represents what Moses thought, then the basic categories of the threefold division would not have left him in severe shock. The view that the laws of Moses are one indivisible whole find no support in the Pentateuch. Remember, that's how some of our New Covenant brothers and dispensationalists argue, and that it, it really affects their theology. It, you know, it's one of their reasons they reject God's moral law. Its labeling of some laws as pattern laws and others as statutes and ordinances to be observed in the land introduces discrimination. While the Hebrew expressions for law distinguish the Ten Commandments from the rest of the Mosaic Code in certain contexts. Above all, the Decalogue self-understood, divinely uttered, lapidary, here's a nice 50-cent word, that which is cut or engraved, apodictic, absolutely, absolute certainty, and constitutional status marks it out as a distinctive collection of laws that in the Pentateuch forever bind all. If the source of Christian confessionalism is scripture read as coherent, progressive, and, self as, and a self-interpreting whole, so now it gets like, should we keep these in our confessional standards? This is something someone was asking at the beginning of this book. Then the threefold division of the law need not roll over and die. No single passage of scripture clearly states the threefold division of the law. We, we clearly admit that, much like the Trinity. It cannot be demonstrated by simplistic appeal to a particular scripture, only by a progressive reading of the Old and New Testaments as the coherent source of Christian theology. Theologians, churchmen, and believers who read scripture in that way were justified in receiving the ancient threefold division of the law as the orthodox position. They did not yield blind allegiance to an untested ecclesiastical dogma, but gave thoughtful acceptance to the threefold division of the law with its practical theological implications. They embraced it as Catholic, that is just universal doctrine, because it is biblically and theologically valid. They were right to do so, and we are not ashamed to follow. With that, let's wrap up in prayer as we are over time. Well, Father God, I do pray that you would bless our time as we come now to worship you, Lord. Thank you that we have been informed by great men of the past that have, have wrestled with this threefold division and has, have helped us to rightly divide your word, so that we know um, how we ought to follow you, that we know your will, as we say, your law is your will, Lord, and that knowing that, God, we pray that we would honor you in all that we do. Please bless our time now as we come to worship you as a church together. In Jesus' name we pray.